Hello, everyone. Welcome to Bad Apple, and Happy Olympic Games. Did you enjoy the twenty twenty one Olympic Games, Riz? You know what? There was a lot of controversy surrounding these Olympic Games. Should they go ahead? That was it. Was that it? That was pretty much it. Should we have them? Should we have them? And you know, I was kind of in the camp of like, let's not, because you know, obvious reasons. But once I was sitting there watching the handball. Watching the equestrian, artistic swimming, rhythmic <laughs> gymnastics, girl, I was living. I was so glad that we did it, and I'm so excited for the Paralympics as well. And then the Winter Olympics. And then the Winter Olympics, literally next year. So while we missed out on one year of Olympics, we're getting that bumper crop now. Oh, you're right. Yeah, you are right. In honor of the Olympic Games, today we are bringing you an episode filled with sporting conspiracies. This is not our first compilation episode. But for the first time ever, we will be doing one case from Australia and one case from New Zealand because we're friends. Yay! Trans Tasman friends. A Trans Tasman episode. Yeah. We'll begin today in Australia. During the 1920s, Australia was suffering through the Great Depression in the wake of World War One. As a relatively young nation, only becoming a federation in 1901. Australia had been hit hard by a war which was predominantly fought for the benefit of the British. National morale was extremely low. Many people needed something to hold on to. They needed a hero. Enter Farlap, the New Zealand-born racehorse, gave Australia something to cheer for and fostered patriotism and national strength by embodying the Australian cultural narrative of the underdog. If you live in Australia and you grew up here, you'll probably. Know that we are absolutely obsessed with Farlap. Not obsessed, but like it's a weird amount of interest in a racehorse, which I guess is an obsession. Fair enough. From the case today, I understand. Yeah, <laughs> I do understand. Yeah, and we still hold some very personal chagrin about it. We're still very annoyed. Like people will get riled up when you ask them about it. Right. People have a very strong opinion on Farlap. All I can say is, you're welcome. We yeah. gave you that horse. Thank you. Thank you. That horse was born and bred on our land. Mmm. So let's just make this actually a double New Zealand case. New Zealanders will claim anything they can get their little hands on. <laughs> oh, that's Pavlova. <laughs> oh my God, don't. Russell Crowe. <laughs> Russell Crowe is from New Zealand. Okay, go. Ask him to get his birth certificate out. Maybe I will. Next time I run into him on the street. Well, I will, because you know why? Because he's from New Zealand. Yeah, true. <laughs> Farlap was born on the fourth of October, nineteen twenty-six, in Timaru, New Zealand. He was of the same sire as Melbourne Cup winner Night March. This means that they were half brothers. At two years old, Farlap was put up for auction at the nineteen twenty-eight Trentham Yearling Sales in Karaka, just outside Auckland. A Sydney-based trainer, Harry Telford, had convinced an American businessman, David Davis, to invest in the Yearling. A Yearling is a horse that's It's about a year old, as the name suggests. And yes, that man is called David Davis. Yeah. Telford sent his brother Hugh to the auction and authorized him to bid up to a hundred ninety guineas. Hugh won the auction at just a hundred and sixty guineas. I don't know what a guineas is. It's a pound and a shilling. Oh, well, I don't know. It seems very like unnecessary, which would explain why it's not around anymore. That does explain a lot. And that's what that explains why the calculation thing that I used online was really confusing. But yeah, I think I worked out that's around twenty four thousand Australian dollars. Damn, which is 
if you're getting like a good, like a thoroughbred racehorse, probably not that bad, you know, expensive, mm. but you know, most people, most horses have more than one owner, everyone chips in a bit. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not Harry though. No. He went, I mean, David Davis. <laughs> David Davis. He went all in. He was going all in. Considering his pedigree, Telford thought that the chestnut colt was somewhat of a bargain. That was until the horse arrived in Australia. Farlap was a gangly colt, with a face covered in warts and an awkward gait. Hardly what you're looking for in a racehorse. On seeing the horse, David Davis was furious and refused to pay Telford to train the horse. Telford was not a successful trainer and didn't have a lot of remaining investors, so in order to retain Davis, he agreed to train the horse for free in exchange for two-thirds of any future winnings. I have a feeling Davis didn't think there was going to be many future winnings. Yeah. I don't think he thought he was losing there. Same energy as George Lucas agreeing to take a cut of his pay through merchandise. Mm. Star Wars. Classic. Merchandise wasn't a big thing. But now, he's rolling. Same energy. S- smart. Yeah. 4D chess. Soon after Farlap arrived in Australia, he was put into his first race. He came last. In his next three starts, he finished midfield. It wasn't until the 27th of April, 1929, at Rose Hill Racecourse in Sydney, that Farlap won his first race. Over the next five months, this form continues, and Farlap gradually moves up in class. So horse racing has, like, levels called classes or groups, and when you win one, you can move up to the next level. And you can race against horses who are better, faster, have won more. Yeah. It's a little bit of a flawed system because, look, let's not go into it, but it's it's the same as, like, it depends who you come up against. I guess it's the best you can do with horses. Yeah. They're a bit random, aren't they? Yeah. He won a Group 2 race at Randwick on the 14th of September and just a week later won his first Group 1 race, the top level of thoroughbred racing in Australia, on the 21st of September 1929, the Rose Hill Guineas. Unfortunately, Farlap's successes made him vulnerable. Organised crime syndicates, gangs, targeted Farlap in order to remove him from competition so that their horse had a chance or so that they could run a fixed race. The first speculation of match-fixing came after the 1929 Melbourne Cup. Farlap had only recently entered the Group 1 class, but his form in the lead-up to the race had secured his position as a sure thing, according to the punters. However, after an uncharacteristically poor performance, Farlap was upstaged by his half-brother Nightmarch and finished the race in third place. Nightmarch. Nightmarch. Get the better name. Upstage your brother. You think Nightmarch has the better name? Than Farlap. Yeah. Yes. March. <laughs> he's coming in the night. He's getting ya. Farlap, what is he doing? Well, he did get him in the middle of the day, <laughs> yeah. in broad daylight. Oh, bold. The evening before the race, manager of March, Eric Connolly, put £9,000 on March to upset Farlap and win the cup. I don't think they would allow a manager to bet on their own horse these days, but I'm not sure. But he put around £580,000 on it. What is he meaning by upset Farlap? Like, just in the race, upset him? Like, when someone who's not expected to win beats someone who is, it's called an upset. Oh. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I thought, like, he was betting on him, like, actually upsetting to the horse. make him pissed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Disclaimer, I've never been to a cup event or place to bet, so that's all coming through now. When I thought that he was betting on his horse to make the other horse upset. <laughs> Betting on his horse to beat the other one. Got you. To win the race. Understood. 
That is a lot of money. Yeah, 1.1 million Australian dollars. Mm, today. Yeah, today. This wasn't just a confident manager backing his horse. The bet won Connolly almost £100,000, which today is around £6.5 million or $12 million Australian dollars. This raises two questions. How did Connolly get this much money? And how was he so sure that Nightmarch would win? Farlap Strapper, so the person who puts the saddle on and walks them around and everything, Tommy Woodcock, speculates that the jockey, Bobby Lewis, had conspired with Connolly to throw the race, allowing Nightmarch to win. Woodcock didn't like Lewis, and apparently neither did Farlap. Woodcock said, quote, Every time Lewis got on Farlap's back, he wouldn't settle. Any little boy could ride him before. On the day of the cup, Woodcock says that Lewis was agitating Farlap inside the barriers, which caused him to jump quickly and pull, which means he began the race at an extremely fast pace, too fast to maintain. It wasn't until about 600 metres from the finish that Lewis took control of the pace, but it was too little too late. Even if he set up a good pace now, there wasn't enough time left to move up through the field. Some people think that these were the instructions given to Lewis by Harry Telford, but others think this was the beginning of a number of sabotage attempts by those threatened by Farlap's success. In 1930, Farlap was entered into the Melbourne Cup again, this time with a different jockey, Jim Pike. Despite carrying an extra 15 kilograms from the previous year, Farlap still entered the race as the odds-on favourite. Did Farlap gain 15 kilos, or was Jim Pike 15 kilos heavier? I knew you were going to ask this question. (laughs) So each horse within a race has to carry a certain amount of weight, and it's handicapped based on how good you are, okay? So (laughs) some of them, if they're better, they have more weight, and so they'll put the jockey on, and whatever the jockey weighs, like if say they have to carry 60 kilos and the jockey only weighs 50, so then they have to put another 10 on into these little things, these little pouches. Oh, my God. Yeah. I never knew that. But if your jockey weighs, like, 57 and your horse is only carrying 54 or something, you're in trouble. You're in trouble, girl, because then your horse will you'll be – your jockey's too heavy. Right, okay. So they were, they were loading him up. Okay. They were like, you're too good. You need, a, you right. need more weight so that, you, so that you have to – so you're slower. Wow. So that the other ones have a chance. Oh, that's so fascinating. Yeah. So without the weights, Farlap would have been like – Oh. He would have been – off. I'm fast as fuck, boy. (laughs) That would have been him. (laughs) On the morning of Saturday, November 1st, 1930, just three days before the race, Farlap was the target of a drive-by shooting in Caulfield. Just after morning track work, around 6am, Tommy Woodcock was leading Farlap back to the stables when a shot was fired at them from a man holding a double-barrel shotgun in the back seat of a small blue sedan. The shot missed, and later that day, Farlap won the Melbourne Stakes at Flemington. As a result of the shooting, Farlap was escorted to Flemington Racecourse by a police motorcade. Yeah. I didn't even know that until doing this. How wild. This is what I mean about the unhealthy, maybe not unhealthy, but like a weird amount of like... Because at this point, it's still all Australian horses versus... It's all Australian horses versus Australian horses. Pretty much. It's like pretty expensive to like get a horse. Nowadays, like they just fly them around. Right. But like, yeah, back then... Why all the nationals in them? It's just this one Australian horse doing really well. Because they were like, he's so good. And everyone was like... Right. Because there was the whole narrative of like... He's kind of shit. Oh, he look, look, he was ugly and gangly. And, yeah. Oh, but now he's amazing. How does he do it? 
kind of like awe. <laughs> I about, love that. Yeah, I love that for you guys. We we were needed something, girl. It's, <laughs> we were it's not bad like way. you were sending him off to like international horse races. Not, not yet, yet, but like at that point, he was just like racing in Australia yeah. against Australia other Australian yeah. horses. Anyway, some believe that the shooting was all a farce to drum up publicity. But more likely, it was an attempt by an organised crime group to remove Farlap from the race. This was the second time that Farlap had been targeted by gangs in just a year. Three days after the attempted shooting, Farlap won the 1930 Melbourne Cup. Nothing can stop this horse! He got one. From 1930 to 1931, Farlap won 14 races in a row. From his first win in 1929, he won 32 from 35 starts. Farlap's owner, David Davis, in search of more competition and greater prize money, decided to send Australia's Wonder Horse to North America. Telford, who was now a joint owner, didn't agree with his plan and refused to go. In his place, Davis sent the strapper, Woodcock, to accompany Farlap on the journey to Tijuana, Mexico. Farlap was entered into the Agua Caliente Handicap, which boasted the largest prize pool ever offered in a North American race. On the 20th of March 1932, ridden by Australian jockey Billy Elliott and carrying 58 kilograms, Farlap won the handicap in a track record time and netted his owners around 50,000 US dollars, which is around a million US dollars today. From Mexico, Farlap travelled to a private ranch in Menlo Park, California, where he was going to stay while the owners negotiated further race appearances. It was at Menlo Park that tragedy struck. On the morning of the 5th of April 1932, just 16 days after his performance in Mexico, Tommy Woodcock found Farlap in his stable in extreme pain and with a high fever, the kinds of symptoms associated with colic, which is generally treatable. But within hours, Farlap's condition had deteriorated so rapidly that there was nothing the veterinarians could do. Tommy Woodcock, his dedicated strapper, held the horse as he passed away. News of Farlap's death hit the Australian press two days later, devastating the nation. Initially reported as colic, those in the racing community were immediately suspicious, and considering Farlap's history, including the attempted assassination, questioned whether foul play was involved. I think along with the whole nationhood, he embodied the underdog vibe. A lot of people, for some reason, had this distrust of America and Americans. And I think when the news broke, a lot of people were like, oh, the Americans got him. He never should have gone there. Right. That was kind of the vibe. Others began to wonder whether Farlap's successes had been aided by tonics, commonly used at the time, and he had died as a result of an accidental overdose. These tonics often included arsenic, strychnine, cocaine, and caffeine. In 1985, Tommy Woodcock made a deathbed admission that the horse may have been given an overdose of a tonic. But this directly contradicts many interviews that Tommy had given over the years, where he vehemently denied that Farlap had ever been given any tonics, even going as far to say that he had poured tonics given to Telford down the drain, so that the trainer would think he was following instructions. Giving some credence to the theory that it was an accidental overdose, or the result of a build-up in arsenic in Farlap's system, is an 82-page handwritten notebook that belonged, that belonged to the trainer Harry Telford. This notebook contained a number of recipes that he used to maintain his horses, indicating that Farlap may have been given tonics with arsenic. However, modern science has provided us with evidence that might prove that Farlap was deliberately poisoned by US gangsters. In the early 1930s, 
Many state governments in the US had legalised on-track and off-track betting, meaning that the gangsters that were running illegal bookmakers were suffering financially. Without betting licences, they couldn't take advantage of the now-booming legal market, and most of their general clientele were losing their money legally. The arrival of Farlap, who could seemingly achieve anything, caused further problems for the illegal bookies, who feared that Farlap would cause big losses for them and big wins for the gamblers. This was mainly for two reasons. Competing with the new legal market, they could no longer fix their own odds to ensure that the house would always win, and a foreign horse in the race disrupted any plans to fix it. In the year 2000, equine specialists determined that Farlap's cause of death wasn't colic, but an acute bacterial gastroenteritis, basically an inflammation of the gastrointestinal tract. But in 2006, Farlap's hide, which is kept on display at the Melbourne Museum, was analysed using a synchrotron. I'm not quite sure what a synchrotron does, but this was able to pinpoint that approximately 35 hours prior to his death, Farlap had ingested a large amount of arsenic. You failed to mention that you tried to figure out what it does. I did try. She tried for you guys. I googled, I said, what is a synchrotron? (laughs) And all I can say is it involves light and making particles move really fast. I see. And somehow it can tell you that 35 hours before Farlap died... (laughs) He ingested a large amount of arsenic. Some say that the findings of this research are unreliable and were just being used by the Victorian government to justify the purchase of the $220 million synchrotron. I would be needing to justify that purchase as well. I couldn't even work out what it does. $220 million. Surely not. Taxpayers' money. (laughs) You tell them, Ellen. (laughs) On synchrotrons. (laughs) Have you been to the museum and seen the taxidermy file lap? Yeah, and I also sketched it in first year. Oh, did you? When we did life drawing, went to the museum. I drew that fucking horse. Damn. And now we're talking about it. It's big, hey. It is actually, and very silky. Mm. And very brown. Mm -hmm. Just like a truly chestnut brown Mm. of a horse. And quite slender. Some people called him Big Red. I don't know why. Like, Farlap is already short. Big Red. Or the Red Terror. It kind of follows you around the room. Like its eyes. Yeah, you know what, it is a bit creepy. Yeah. However, the findings of the synchrotron were confirmed again in research in 2008, where hairs from Farlap's mane were tested at a lab in Chicago, which had the ability to distinguish between arsenic which had entered through the bloodstream and arsenic which had infused into the hair during the taxidermy process. This also concluded that Farlap had been given a massive dose of arsenic between 30 and 40 hours prior to his death. Whether this overdose of arsenic was deliberate or accidental will almost never be solved. Evidence is limited, and most people involved in Farlap's care have passed away. One thing is certain. The conspiracy that Farlap was murdered is the most widely believed sporting conspiracy in Australia, with one in three Aussies leaning into the story. Across the ditch, one in three Kiwis will also tell you about a sporting conspiracy that they believe in, that the All Blacks were deliberately poisoned before the 1995 Rugby World Cup Grand Final, where they narrowly lost to the host nation, South Africa. Can I just say, the All Blacks, they, that's just the most, like, they looked at the team, they said, oh, sick kit, sick uniform, the All Blacks. The you most, don't even know! What's the, is there like a, yeah. oh, tell me. There was a misprinting. Oh my god! And someone printed it as the All Backs, and because someone quoted about the team saying they played like All Backs or All Backers or whatever. All Backs, yeah, Back is like a position in rugby. Yeah, the offensive the all position. Backs. Yeah. And then they printed it wrong as the All Blacks, 
and we just they just ran with it. <laughs> I love that. Are you serious? No, I'm not kidding. That's it. It's not because they're. I mean, I think in time, like things evolved to like emulate the name. Yeah. But it was originally a misprint. That's so. I love that. Fun fact. I love that story. <laughs> they so they were called something else before then. I maybe, couldn't tell you what that was. But. Maybe they were just. New Zealand rugby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know what their name was prior. Unnamed. I'm glad it's All Blacks now. Me too. On the 24th of June, 1995, the New Zealand All Blacks and South African Springboks took to the field at Alice Park Stadium in Johannesburg in front of a crowd of 65,000 people for the final of the 1995 Rugby World Cup. It was a historic moment for South Africa, who were in somewhat of a renaissance under the lead of Nelson Mandela. The World Cup was the first major sporting event hosted by South Africa following the abolition of apartheid, and it was the first time the Springboks had been allowed to compete. They had previously been banned by the International Rugby Football Board in a condemnation of the apartheid regime. While morale in the country was high, it was still a tense socio-political climate. The country had only just voted in the first democratic elections in 1994 and it had resulted in a change in leadership from the South African National Party, who had been in power since 1948, to the African National Congress, led by Mandela. While political change was certainly well overdue, the country had been thoroughly shaken up in the last five years. What better way to distract an overwhelmed populace than with some good old-fashioned rugby? And if the home team could boost nationalism and unity by storming home to victory, it would be even better. You know what? I'll give them that. The in two thousand and nine, I think, when New Zealand hosted the Rugby World Cup, it was paramount that we won. Oh really? Like why would we host it in New Zealand if we weren't going to win? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I feel like you were also dominating. Yeah, exactly. At that we were also good at rugby. So you better you better Yeah, it well, was you like, don't have any excuse. So much pressure, you know, <laughs> like we had to win. Yeah. So Was everyone talking about it? Everyone was watching mm-hmm. my family, who don't even know anything. So we don't watch any sports. We watched the Rugby World Final with, against France. Uh-huh. And when they won, everyone on my street was, like, screaming. Oh my like, God. you could hear it, like, from the lounge. Everyone on the street yelling. That's like, crazy. I know. Such a weird, what a weird moment yeah. in my life. But there you go. Makes sense. During the round games, both South Africa and New Zealand had gone undefeated. On their path to the finals... South Africa had beaten Western Samoa and France to make it to the grand final, while New Zealand had overcome Scotland and put up an extremely strong performance against England, with Jonah Lomu scoring four tries alone. During these matches, the South Africans had outscored their opponents a total of 129 points to 55, while the All Blacks had scored 315 points to their opponents 104. I'll give you a quick rundown of how the points work. I don't watch much rugby union, so I, this is also yeah. I'm union. from I'm from real footy country. Oh God, <laughs> the league, <laughs> rugby league. <laughs> Basically, in rugby union, you get five points for a try, two for a conversion, which is when you kick a goal after a try, three points for a penalty goal, which is where you kick a goal after a penalty, and three points for a drop goal, which is where you just like you're running around and you kick it yeah and seven for a penalty try but i don't think those those happen very often what's the difference between a try yeah and a goal okay a try you know when they run and put the ball on the ground yeah that's a try 
They run past where the goals are and put the ball down. That's a try. Uh-huh. And oh. a goal is you have to kick it through the sticks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Going into the final, New Zealand were definitely favourites. Championed by Lomu, the All Blacks seemed unbeatable, but their success had come with a cost. Rory Stein was Mandela's chief bodyguard, but during the World Cup had been involved with the All Black security team as well. Stein had said that during the competition, there had been a collective paranoia within the group, that they would somehow be targeted. After they beat England in the semi-final on June 18th and booked their spot in the grand final against South Africa, this paranoia escalated. As the biggest obstacle to the home nation fulfilling their dream of a World Cup win, the All Blacks knew they were in danger. In response, their security team took extra measures in the week leading up to the final, including having the team eat separately to the rest of the guests in their hotel in Johannesburg. According to Stein, this was a bad idea, and made them even more vulnerable to be singled out for some kind of sabotage, which is exactly what is alleged to have occurred on June 22, 1995. On Thursday, June 22nd, two days before the grand final on Saturday, the All Blacks went back to their hotel for dinner, before going to catch a movie at the cinema. At dinner, some of the team ate chicken burgers, and some had beef burgers. There were refreshments, water, tea, and coffee. A few hours later, at the cinema, prop forward Richard Lowe told Stein that he needed to go back to the hotel. Stein told him that there was only half an hour left of the film. Surely he could wait and go back with the rest of the team. But Richard said, I need to go now. Stein went to go and tell the rest of the players that he was going back to the hotel with Richard because they were spread across multiple theatres. Before he made it to the adjacent theatre, the doors burst open and another player walked out clutching his stomach. With the two men feeling very ill, Stein began driving them back to the hotel, but they didn't make it. They needed to stop halfway into their journey on the side of a busy Johannesburg road as the two were violently ill, projectile vomiting on the road. Once they got back to the hotel, Stein realised the problem was far more widespread than he anticipated, with 27 of the 35-man squad coming down with the illness. Stein said, quote, It looked like something out of Saving Private Ryan. Guys lying on the floor outside the doctor's room, down the passage, and the doctor and the physio and medic were administering electrolytes and injections. Stein immediately suspected that the players had been the victim of foul play, saying, quote, I was a police officer. I worked with facts. What my eyes told me that night was that the team had deliberately been poisoned. Determining the source of the poisoning was a little more difficult. Some players were completely fine, and the illness wasn't confined to just the chicken or the beef. Some of each had been unwell. This prompted Stein to suspect that the water had been tampered with, and those who had the water from the hotel, or tea or coffee, were the ones who had gotten ill. By the time the team took to the field on Saturday, some of the players were still feeling under the weather, and the illness had really affected the preparation of the team as a whole. Players were worried about another potential outbreak, and their training sessions had diminished numbers. Winger Jeff Wilson had to be replaced at the last minute as he threw up on the side of the pitch before the game started. Despite this, the All Blacks were an even match for the Springboks. At the end of the first half, South Africa were leading 9-6, having kicked two penalty goals and one drop goal, and New Zealand just two penalty goals. In the second half, the scores were quickly levelled by another drop goal from New Zealand, and the scores remained unchanged at full time, sending the game to extra time. It was here that the illness of the New Zealand team began to take its toll. While they kept pace with the Springboks for the first half of extra time, the South Africans kicked the winning goal with seven minutes to go, and the All Blacks were unable to respond in time. The final score was 15-12 in favour of the home nation. 
Fun fact, both teams' points were scored by just a single player. So it was all goals. It was all goals. So not a single person ran with the ball to the other side. No. They were just always stopped. Yeah. Damn, that is tight. Guess it's, it's a good tight. game. Yeah, yeah, right. And is this right that so there was only one day between the poisoning and the poisoning, quote unquote, and the final? Yeah, so they got poisoned on the Thursday evening. Yeah. Then it's fight. Friday. Yeah. Then the game is on Saturday. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Hell yeah. That's some New Zealand mm. pride. They, and you know what? They still played that whole game. Everyone was food poisoned mm. and they still did great. And they deliberately like kept it under wraps. They didn't tell anyone. They didn't tell the media or because they were like, we don't want people to think that we're like My a men. weakened team. My men. <laughs> Hell yeah. See what I mean about the oh. nationalism? All of a sudden you're like, I love this country. New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're like, they're doing great. The presentation of the World Cup trophy became iconic with a newly elected Nelson Mandela presenting Springboks captain Francois Piernat with the trophy while wearing a Springboks jersey which was embellished with the number six, Piernat's number. This scene and the story behind it was so iconic that it inspired the 2009 film Invictus starring Morgan Freeman and Matt Damon. The film, interestingly, doesn't mention the sickness which struck down the opposing team just days before the grand final. By the way, Morgan Freeman and Matt Damon is like, if I was the casting director, the literal first two people I would think of casting as Nelson Mandela and Francois Pionnard. <laughs> I'd be like, what about, what about Morgan Freeman? Yeah, not very original. <laughs> yeah. What about, and Matt Damon? And the fact that they were both like, yeah, absolutely. And then they just got... I feel I guess, like they didn't even audition anyone. No. It's just like, let's just get these two guys. Yeah, God. for sure. <laughs> so, was the water deliberately poisoned? And if so, who was responsible? New Zealand coach Laurie Maines hired a private detective to investigate the poisoning, but there was very little evidence found, and nothing conclusive was ever determined. However, Laurie alleges that a waitress known as Susie was responsible for the poisoning. She may have been acting independently or under instructions, and she had poisoned the water that was served to the All Blacks at the hotel. This theory has been endorsed by rugby commentator Keith Quinn, who was at the 1995 World Cup. Quinn recalls that, quote, They were determined to make the event the catalyst to pull South Africa together as one nation. Did someone somewhere in Mandela's organisation, and maybe not himself because he's an honourable man, but maybe someone thought, what do we do to make sure of the win? Ah, send this little lady into the hotel and get her to drop some capsules into the milk. Or whatever it was, and the New Zealand team went sick. In 2015, Mike Brewer, who was one of the flankers in the 1995 All Blacks team, didn't make any accusations as to the poisoning and whether it was deliberate, but did comment on the significance of the win for South Africa at the time. He said, quote, It would be nice to have a World Cup winner's medal, but South Africa's win probably helped in cutting down a lot of barriers after apartheid. In the spirit of 1995, it was probably the right result for the rebirth of the South African nation. Wow. Wow, that's maturity. That man, was he one of the 28 or 27 that got sick? I have no idea. I wonder. Maybe he'd feel differently if he was. <laughs> yeah. But if he was sick, like, wow. Mm. Either way, wow. Just holding no grudges. Once again... 
New Zealand. New Zealand. Recovering from an international scandal mm. to target New Zealand. Listen to our episode, The Rainbow Warrior. Mm, true. <laughs> Where you'll hear another story of similar narrative. New Zealand is all about friendship and good vibes. Everyone just picks on New Zealand. I guess building off what Mike said, despite apartheid ending in South Africa, there was still only one black player on the South African team, which I guess highlighted the discrepancies that still existed and the need for healing within the country, I suppose. Concluding thoughts to these two Mm. allegations? I think both definitely deliberate poisonings. Oh, yeah. I'm glad we agree. Yeah. That's all to it. I think potentially Farlap's trainer, strapper, whatever, like might have been giving him tonics that might have had arsenic in it, but I don't think that that would have caused his death. Even if there was like an accidental overdose of one of the tonics, I still don't think it would be strong enough, right? Like it was an enormous amount. Mm. Takes a lot. Like, you know, you kill rats with arsenic, but rats are tiny. Yeah, horses, horses. Massive. Yeah. So I think deliberate, and I think... The All Blacks definitely deliberately poisoned. Yes. Whether it was someone who had those kind of motivations, like someone that was in government or someone that was like associated with that, I don't know. Or whether it was just like the chef was like, I want South Africa to win. Mm. And so just poisoned half the food. I don't know. Mm. Maybe it was in the milk, like tea and coffee. Milk. Because, yeah. like, seven of them didn't get poisoned. Either seven of them didn't drink any water or seven of them didn't have any milk in their tea or coffee. That's a lot more likely. And I was also wondering, they should have looked into whether Farlap was booked for any more races coming up. Mm. That's what I was thinking. I was like, were they trying to repump him up with stuff for an upcoming race? Ah. Are tonics things that you usually give horses when they're not racing? Not really sure. Yeah. But that definitely would be, that would help. That'd help build a theory for sure. Mm. Look at us. There are so many parallels in these two stories. There really is, isn't there? I was thinking that when I was writing it. Like nationhood, the need to cling on to some kind of like Mm. something that will unite everyone. Like everyone can get around. It all comes back to national identity. Mm. Every single thing in this world. Yeah. So. And money. Wasn't about money with the All Blacks. It might have been. Stein thinks that it was illegal bookmakers Oh, who, who somehow snuck someone into the hotel to poison the milk or the water. Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, just bold trying to poison the All Blacks. I mm. feel like those men, like, stomachs of steel. Iron. Yeah. Like, what the yeah. hell are you going to put in food? To... But they did it. Yeah, apparently you can. Gosh. Apparently you can take down an entire rugby team with <sighs> some milk. Definitely deliberate both. Yep. That's our conclusion. Case closed. <laughs> <laughs> no evidence needed. <laughs> just pure fact. Just accept. Take our word for it. Just interpretation. Just just looking at what's there, you know? You know, use, mm. use your ears. We just told you. <laughs> we hope you liked this slightly unique, quirky, fun case. We like them. Yeah. Hope you like them. Yeah. Hope you learned something new as well. Oh, I learned heaps of new things Me today. too. Notably. Yeah. But Farlap is a horse. Yeah. Helen thought Farlap was a person originally. <laughs> yeah. The whole writing process. Yeah. Ruse was like, well, I'll talk about Farlap's murder. Mm. And I was like, oh, rip. Yeah. Still rip. Still rip. But, but... because I thought it was a person. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, the horse. And then it all made sense. Mm-hmm. That's what I learned. What did you learn? <laughs> I learned why the All Blacks are called the All Blacks. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. I'm going to tell everyone that fact. 
Yeah, I'll clarify. We'll, we'll go up and look it up. We'll clarify some deta- details about it. But I it, don't want to be spewing false information. Misprint, though. That's what the papers did. They spewed <laughs> false information. Did you like my pun? My spew pun? Oh, my God. we got to go. Yeah, on that note. We're going. <laughs> We're leaving. Enjoy the rest of your week. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.